as we, as we dive back in, I want to invite you to please open your Bibles to Judges chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, here in the West Auditorium, there's some available in the pew rack in front of you. In the East Auditorium, we have people walking around who would love to hand you a Bible, so please check that out. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, we would love for you to take that home with you today and make that your own. I do want to warn you uh, that typically when we open a passage, we're going to get to that pretty quickly. This one's going to take a while. So, uh, you know, just to protect your hand so there's no cramping or anything, please find a comfortable place to rest your Bible, okay? So as I mentioned, we are in week two of a two-week series that talks about how each of our homes is a church. And today we're talking about how our church is a home. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but this would be a strange place to live. Uh, Trust me, when we shut the lights off at night and leave, it is straight up creepy. You do not want to be here, okay? When I was in middle school and high school, the youth group that I was a part of, every other summer we would do these youth musical tours and uh, we would practice all spring our choreography and our song lyrics and our drama parts and then we would go on this tour of churches kind of in the Midwest and each night we'd perform at a different church and they would feed us pizza because that's what you feed students and then we would spend the night either in host homes or sometimes the church would say, hey, make our church your home. And a couple observations I want to share with you on that. First of all, uh, pews, they were not made by Stearns and Foster or Sealy Posturepedic, despite what you might think. Uh, they're not very comfortable to sleep in. And some of you do prove otherwise every weekend, and that's okay. We're not judging you, okay? <laughs> Another thing that I've noticed is um, it's a weird thing to be in church in your PJs. Walking in your PJs across the church lobby to go to the bathroom to brush your teeth is just a strange feeling. In fact, being in church at all in your PJs, I don't recommend it. I mean, we want this to be a place where people come and they feel welcome as they are, but there have to be some limitations, okay, people? So just so you know, PJs are off limits. Um, But the bottom line today is not that we're all gonna move in together here. Let's not do that, okay? Can we agree on that? But we do wanna talk about how our church is a home and home is about family. The truth is that we know there's a big difference between a house and a home. A house is a structure that people live in. A home is a place where people love each other and belong and invest in one another. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. How do we do that as a church home? How are we a family together? And I know some of you are thinking, Jonathan, we are a family. We're just super dysfunctional. And that might be true. But I want to propose that I think there are three things that we can do today and in the days and months ahead to be a healthy family. It's interesting to me, but I feel like for the first time in history in a long time, we live at one of the loneliest points in history. I had class a couple weeks ago at Lincoln Seminary, and for that class, we read a book called The Church Leader's MBA, and I want to read to you a little bit from that book. This is what it says. In the past 50 years, the world has moved from mysterious, little-known, faraway, large, and overwhelming entity to something different. The term global village has become real. The internet and mass media have obliterated space, time, and distance. In other words, we're more connected than we've ever been. And we know that technology plays a big part in that. He goes on to say, how has technology changed the way people live? Answer that question in light of these realities. Microwaves, voicemail, pizza deliveries, internet, cable and satellite television, DVDs, and video games. What do these have in common? They have equipped people for cocooning. In today's world, you can be alone in a crowd. People live in isolation, even though they may be in a well-populated area. And I think sometimes we wrongfully assume that because we're more connected than we've ever been, that people have a deeper sense of belonging than they've had before. When in fact, the exact opposite is often true of that. In fact, this book was written six years ago, and there's a technology that it does not mention that we use every day, and that's social media. And while social media was designed to bring us together, 
it doesn't always work that way. In fact, often it drives us further apart and further into our own worlds. And this is why it's so incredibly important that our church is a, is a home. And we live in a world full of isolated people. So I think the very first thing we can do to be a great church family is to make sure that this is a place where people belong. So how do we do that? I think it has to start with us. God has called us to be a family. In the book of Ephesians, which is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Ephesus about how they can be a church, Paul mentions three things that are important to who we are as a family. The first of those is this, that Jesus is the head of the church and we are his body. And yes, I think Paul is probably talking to the church global or every Christian everywhere, but remember, he wrote this to a specific church about what it means to be a church. And so he's saying to this church, you are the body of Christ. And so it's true for us as well. We are the body of Christ. I love the way that Pastor Wayne puts this. He says, we are the tangible touch of Jesus Christ to the world around us. Paul goes on to say that not only are we the body of Christ, but God's spirit dwells in us. He talks about this figurative building built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and Jesus as the cornerstone and then the church is built on top of all of that. And we know that God's spirit resides in that building. And what Paul is saying is in the Old Testament, we would look to the temple or to the tabernacle to see who God was. Now people look to us to see what God is like. Paul also says that we are citizens with God's people and members of his household. In other words, we are God's family. And so if we're God's family and his presence dwells in us and we are the tangible touch of Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity to show the world what his family looks like. When the world looks at us, they need to see what God's presence is like. But when in a world where people feel isolated and feel alone, often they need to belong before they can believe. Last year around this time, I uh, met a woman here at church named Eugenia, and Eugenia is a friend of mine now, and uh, when she came to Decatur a few years ago, she came here at a pretty dark time in her life. And during that time, a member of our church cared for her extremely well. In fact, when I met Eugenia, she said, I've been cared for so well by the people of this church, I had to come see what this place was about. And Eugenia grew up with a Catholic background and then she had been Buddhist for a number of years. And so when she came here, she was incredibly spiritual, but she had a lot of questions about what this was all about, what it, what it was that we believed. And so through the course of being a part of our services for the last year, through this friend continuing to care for her and guide her, uh, she was a part of an equipped class last winter that Morgan and I taught about faith. And then she joined a small group through all of those things Last spring, Eugenia came to a point where she invited Jesus to be the Lord and leader of her life, which is just an awesome thing. The sad thing is that uh, I met with Eugenia for coffee this, this week, and she's moving to Springfield this weekend, or excuse me, St. Louis this weekend, because she's starting a new job tomorrow. And we're really, really excited for her, and we're, we're grateful for the time that she spent here. We're grateful for the work that God has done in her life. But we know this isn't just Eugenia's story. This is all of our story. Because this is what happens when we are the body of Christ when we live the way that God has called us to live, when, when we show people what his presence looks like by the way we treat one another. And so I wanna ask the question, how can we have more stories like Eugenia's? And I have four ideas on how we can do that. The first of those is that we can connect with each other. Imagine that you have dinner with your family and you all have to wear name tags because you have no idea who each other are. Would that make any sense? Hopefully not. If it does in your house, we can talk about that later. But um, hopefully that's not the case. And that shouldn't be the case here either. We need to be a place where everybody can connect, a place where everybody feels like they know others and are known by others. Another thing that we can do is care for one another really well. And I love hearing stories in our church 
about how our pastors and our elders and staff care for people, but I love even more hearing stories about how you care for one another because that's who we're supposed to be. And I know that many people here get the care that they need and I know others that don't. And so we need to be intentional about being a place where we care for one another. I think another thing that we can do is take the opportunity to be real. Our world is not looking for a bunch of people who are faking having it together. They wanted to see people who are genuinely uh, going after something, who are seeking God, and are honest about the struggles that they have along the way. And the fourth thing that I think we can do is we can obey. And this is a tough one. But the truth is that if we are living the life that God has called us to, to live, if we are obeying the things that he has called us to, then there is something about us that people can't help but see. I love the way Deuteronomy chapter four puts this. In verses five and six, it says this. See, I've taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. And obviously they're talking about the nation of Israel, but the same thing applies to us. When people look at us, if we're obeying God, if we're doing what he's called us to do, people should see something different. People don't just want a place where they can belong and feel loved. They want a place where they can belong, where they know that the group that they're belonging to, that something is different, that it matters, that it makes a difference, that people are part of that family. And so when we connect, when we care, when we're real, and when we obey God, we become a family that people want to belong to. And so the first thing that we can do to be a healthy family is to focus on being the body of Christ and being a place where people belong. So what's the second thing? Well, to get us into that, we're gonna do a little quiz, and it's gonna be group participation time. I know how much everyone loves that, okay? So what I'm gonna do is put a TV family on the screen, and I want you to tell me the name of the family, not the name of the show. The family, not the show. We're gonna start with an easy one. Here we go. Who's this? Brady, you guys are so good. The last service said Brady Bunch. No, I said family, not name of show. Okay, so we got this. So let's try the next one. Who is this? The Tanners, yes, that's a tough one. This next one's a little harder, so we'll see if, see if anybody's got this one. What family is this? Reagan. Somebody said it, the Reagans, yes, good job, all right. Uh, the next one, that's Blast from the Past. Who is this? I heard someone say the Allens, good try though, but it is in fact the Taylors, okay. Now a morale boost, who's this next family? Yay, all right. What about this next one? Does anybody know the next family? The Bravermans. It is, in fact, the Bravermans. Next family is another morale boost. Oh, it's not the Adams family. The Monsters, yes. And then the family that we all want to be. <laughs> the Engel family, okay. So what was the purpose of that? The truth is that we love TV families. In fact, we might not watch any of these families anymore, um, but we all have DVRs and Netflix queues full of shows about TV families that we love to watch and also wonder how they keep from killing one another every week, okay? The truth is that none of us would actually want our family to be that way. None of us would want our family to fall apart every single week and then in the last three minutes of the week come together for a nice, loving Hallmark moment family dinner, okay? We don't love that because that's all about drama. So what's the difference between that kind of family and a healthy family? And what does that mean for us? I think it ultimately comes down to the idea of investing. And so the first thing that we do is make sure this is a place where people can belong. 
The second thing that we do is make sure this is a place where people are invested in. So what does that look like for our church? Well, it's not gonna surprise you as discipleship pastor that I have an answer to that question, and it's an answer that we hear every single week. In fact, if you've been around here for a while, I would love your help for this. The answer to this question is the mission of our church, and so I'm gonna say the first half, and I'm gonna point to you, and you're gonna help me out. The mission of our church is to develop devoted followers of Jesus Christ by... Growing and serving together. Yep, it's that. Growing and serving together. So what does that mean for us? I think if we really want to be a place where we invest, we have to go from being a great big family to a bunch of smaller families. And that's why we have things like small groups and classes and equipped classes like we have on Wednesday nights right now. That's why we serve in groups of people here in our church and in our community and around the world. Because ultimately, in order to really invest in one another, we have to get smaller. And it occurred to me as I was thinking about this sermon that I'm not asking you to do all these things because I'm the discipleship pastor. I'm a discipleship pastor because I've experienced the power of these kinds of relationships in my own journey. I've experienced the power of having people who love me, who are are for me, who are pointing me toward Christ, and I get to do the same thing with them. And so I think all of that starts with these kinds of opportunities. And to be honest with you, going back to Eugenia's story, I don't think stories like Eugenia happen when we just show up and face forward every week. In fact, I think we run a real risk, if that's all we do, of becoming a place where people feel like they're disconnected, like they don't belong, like they're not a part of the family. And then eventually this place just feels too big and too impersonal. And so I want to invite you today, if you're not a part of a Grow Together or a Serve Together group, in your program, there's a tear-off card, and on one side it says, your church is a home. And the box says, I am interested in learning more about opportunities to grow and serve together. So if you fill that out, if you check that box, drop that off at the Welcome Center, we will hand you a $100 gift card to our cafe today. I'm just kidding. That's not going to happen. <laughs> Some of you are like, oh, man, I'm going to join a Grow Together group. Um, so I think the first thing that we do is we make sure that we're a place where people belong. We are intentional about the way that we invest in one another. And then the third thing is essential, and that is the way that we prioritize the next generation, which brings us to Judges chapter 2. So I want to invite you to pick your Bible back up. Judges chapter 2 comes at a really important part in Israel's history. This takes place, this passage takes place about 50 years after the Exodus, 50 years after Moses has let, God has used Moses to lead the people out of slavery in Egypt and to the promised land. And we know that they ended up wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years because they refused to believe that God could actually deliver them to the promised land. We also know that Moses didn't get to lead them into the promised land because he had done some things that God said, you're not, you're not going to be the one who's going to do this. And so his leadership was passed on to Joshua. And so Joshua leads the people across the Jordan River into the promised land. He leads them on a seven-year conquest of the land, and they're about to settle in the land having completed that conquest. And that's where we pick up Judges chapter 2. Verse 6 says this, After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Herez in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. Now, I mentioned a minute ago that this is kind of the end of a 50-year journey to finally go, okay, we have left Egypt and we're in the land, but this is a part of a much bigger journey because it goes back to 
Genesis, when God talked to Abraham and said, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I am going to give you a home in this land. And so hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, they're finally setting in this, settling in this place. And it's just this beautiful moment, and it says that the people knew the Lord, and they followed him, and everything is great. Right? This next verse is almost impossible to believe, but it says that after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. And it's just astonishing to me that we've just had this amazing moment and only years later, one generation later, the people of Israel have forgotten God and who he is and what he has done. And it makes me wonder, how does this happen? How does this happen, especially when there's so much scripture about making sure that we teach these things to the next generation? We talked about one of those passages last week in Psalm 78. Psalm 78, verse four says this. It says, we will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation their praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. And the truth is, this passage is for every parent here. It's, it's a reminder to each of us that we have to teach our, our kids about who God is and what he has done. But the great thing about this passage is that it isn't just about parents. In fact, this passage is addressed to grandparents and great-grandparents and aunts and uncles and family friends because it's all of our responsibility to make sure that the next generation knows about who God is and what he has done and how he has called us to live. There's another passage uh, that's really familiar when it comes to this idea. It's in Deuteronomy chapter six. And what I love about this passage in Deuteronomy is it really emphasizes how important this is. It says, teach your children about these things when you wake and when you go to bed, when you leave the house and when you're at home. Write them on your hands, have them on your foreheads, put them on the door frames of your house. In other words, all the time in every situation, talk to your children about who God is and what he has done. I want to read you the first two verses of this chapter. In Deuteronomy 6, 1 and 2, it says, These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, so that you may enjoy long life. Did you notice when this passage took place? It took place before they entered into the promised land, before Joshua led them into the promised land, before he led them on the conquest of the land. It says, teach your children, and your, so that their children and their children and their children and their children will fear the Lord and follow him. So how, again, do we get from Deuteronomy 6 to Judges 2? How do we get from everybody is following the Lord, and you, hey, by the way, you're going into this land, and you need to do the things that, that we're talking about. You need to teach your children. You need to prioritize this so that their children will follow. How do we get from that to Judges chapter two, where the very next generation after Joshua, Joshua does not know the Lord or what he has done? Well, let me answer that this way. This will probably not come as a surprise to some of you in the room, but I am not much of a runner. Why are you laughing? Okay. Truthfully, uh, those of you that do enjoy running, I oscillate between really admiring you and kind of sort of hating you. So just so you know, okay, it's all right. It's not personal. I just don't understand it. Um, like many of you in the room, I have watched running on TV because there's nothing cooler than sitting on your couch eating some chips while you watch other people exercise. Am I right? Okay. 
But what I've noticed about running, as I'm sure you have, is when it comes to a relay race, it doesn't matter if you have the four fastest runners in the world. If you do not handle the baton well, you are going to lose the race. And the same thing is true when it comes to our faith and passing that baton of faith to the next generation. And it makes me wonder, is it possible that even though Joshua and his generation knew the Lord and what he had done, they were not intentional about the way they passed that baton on? So it makes me wonder, how are we doing? How, how are we doing as a church? How are we doing as a culture? Many of you know that before coming to First Christian a couple of years ago, I was a youth pastor in West Michigan for 13 years. And during that time, I came across this phrase that I think really describes kind of the general understanding of spirituality in our youth culture, and it really for many of us. And so I want to just share with you that phrase is moralistic, therapeutic deism. And I want to kind of unpack that and see if that resonates with what you experience and and I just want to be really clear, though, before I get into this, I'm not, like, criticizing anybody. I'm not saying the students of our church are this way. I'm just saying I think it's kind of a common understanding in our culture. So let's start with the word moralistic. The idea is that people want to be good. Students want to be good. They want to be moral. And why do they want to do this? Because they believe that by being good, they will get to live good and happy lives as adults, and that ultimately they'll get to go to heaven. So moralism is about being good. It's about you know, doing what we're supposed to do so that we can enjoy the benefits of that later in life. What about the word therapeutic? Basically, the understanding is that God wants me to feel good. So there's a lot of focus on emotions, there's a lot of focus on feelings, and not nearly as much focus on behavior. So be good, feel good. And then deism is a theological understanding that God created the world and got everything going, and then he stood back and watched it happen. And he's not involved in our everyday lives. The only caveat about this and this understanding is that the people who hold this idea are, believe that God wants to intervene in their lives and make sure that they are, in fact, happy and well. And so it occurred to me as I read this that I just know a lot of people, I think, that their understanding of faith really is this. Believe in God, feel good, and be good. And so if that's true, what does that mean for us? Well, I, I don't think going back to Judges 2, that's quite forsaking God for the idols of our culture. But it's also a long way from knowing God and what he has done and live, choosing to live and obey him. So what do we do about that? Well, I think the first thing is that we have to value everyone. Like I mentioned, I was in class a couple weeks ago, and when I was in class, I made friends with a pastor in southern Indiana named Tony, and I was sharing with him about our church and the demographics of our church and how we have you know, young children and students and college students and young adults and all the way up the spectrum to people in their 70s and 80s and 90s and how it's awesome that we have this kind of diverse congregation. And the truth is that we have to care for everybody in this congregation. But we also have to remember that we are only one generation away from the generation after Joshua. So what do we do to change the ending of Joshua's story? Well, I think the first thing is that we have to invest in families. We realize that parents are the primary influence in their, to their child's spirituality. And so we want to do everything in our power to help equip parents, to support parents, to partner with parents, to make sure that parents feel equipped to do that. And you may know that a few years ago, our church adopted an orange philosophy. And let's go back to preschool art. Help me out here. When you combine red and yellow, you get... Because well, a few of you know that. That's good. Okay. Um, in this case... Red represents the warm heart of the home, and yellow represents the light of the church. And when we combine those two things, we end up with a force where we can actually 
hopefully make a significant impact in the life of a child by making sure that the church and the home are on the same page. And so that impacts everything we do. It impacts the curriculum that we use. It impacts the resources that we send home with parents. It impacts the way that we communicate. It impacts the milestones that we celebrate and the events that we have, like this TechWise family event we have coming up in a few weeks because, or next weekend because we want to make sure that we do everything in our power to help equip parents so that they can tell their children and so that we can surround their children with all of those things. And so I want to suggest today, just like Psalm 78, that there are four things that we can all do that grandmas and grandpas, that great-grandparents, that aunts and uncles, that family friends can do to make sure that we are passing on our faith to the next generation. The first thing I think that we can do is serve. And there are a variety of ways that we can serve. But I wanna just highlight our kids' ministry and our student ministry. I talked to our family ministries team this week and I said, how many volunteers does it take to serve and love the students and, and the children of our church every week? And they said 130 volunteers, which is just an amazing number of people. And did you know that right now they are looking for nine more volunteers to fill positions in their ministry? I think there's more than nine of us in here. It's just an observation. Um, I also found out that there are positions that they have where you don't even have to like kids, okay? I mean, it helps, okay? But you don't have to, all right? And so I want to encourage you today, if you've ever thought about impacting the next generation by serving in our kids' ministry, by serving in our student ministry, again, drawing you back to this card, there's a box that says, I'm interested in serving the next generation, either first kids or student life. And if you fill that out, you check that card out, check that box off, drop this off at the Welcome Center, we are gonna give you a brand new iPad today. Again, I'm kidding, that's not happening, okay? But we would love to help you do that. We'd love to help you plug in. So the first thing we can do is serve. The second thing we can do is teach. And I think this is an incredibly important one. Um, As I looked at all these passages, one idea comes up over and over and over again, and that is teach, teach, teach. So how do we do that? We'll get to that in a minute. What do we teach? We teach who God is, what he's done, and what it means to follow him. When do we do that? Going back to Deuteronomy 6, we do it all the time. How do we do that? I have this idea. Today, as you're leaving church, grab your Bible, follow a family in the parking lot, and start reading Genesis 1 to them. I think it will change their lives. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. It's weird, okay? But what I do want to encourage you to do is to be intentional about the way you live your life and let your life speak, and then also be intentional, whether it's here inside the walls of our church or in your families outside the walls of this church, to be intentional about teaching the next generation who God is, what he's done, and what it means to follow him. So we serve, we teach. I think uh, the next thing we can do is encourage. Um, Encouragement is deeply needed. If I can be honest with you, before I was a parent, I knew a lot more about parenting than I do 11 years into parenting. I can also admit to you that there are a lot of days I don't know what I'm doing with my kids. But I do know that in those moments where I feel lost or frustrated, even the simplest encouragement goes a long way in keeping me going on the right path with my kids. I don't know where I heard this idea, but I once heard one, someone say, we, if, what if we assume today that everyone we meet needs encouragement? And I want to say to you, what if we assume today that every family we see needs encouragement? And not just, hey, good job, or keep on keeping on, whatever that means. But what if we were intentional to say, hey, you can do this. God's equipped you. Pray for your kids, pray with your kids. Continue to teach them, continue to be intentional about the conversations that you have with them. You can do this and God's gonna use it in a mighty way. And what if we'd assumed that that didn't stop at high school? 
because we all know parents who have children who are in college and young adults and young marrieds who need that reminder to continue to teach their kids about who God is and what he's done. And we also know that for every family who's had a child move away, we have probably at least one person who's attending college here or who's a young adult here beginning their career who needs that same kind of encouragement. And so let's serve, let's teach, let's encourage, and then let's also pray. And I think sometimes when we think about prayer, we run the risk of thinking this is our last resort instead of our first effort. Truth is that we need to be intentional about praying for the families, for the children, for the students, for the young adults of our church. I was very fortunate in middle school and high school to have a great friend who I spent a lot of time at his home. And every time I was there, two things happened. His mom fed me way too much food and insisted that I eat more. And then two, uh, every time I was there, she would ask me about what was going on in my life. And I just thought she was kind of being nice. And I think she probably was. But the day I graduated high school, I received a card from this family saying, hey, just so you know, six years ago, we made a commitment to our youth pastor to pray for you every day. And we've been doing that. What an amazing gift to me, to my parents, to my family. And now that my kids are beginning to enter middle school and high school, I wanna make sure that they have that same kind of thing. And so I'm so grateful that my parents and my family and my wife's family are all praying for and investing in my kids the way that they are. I'm also grateful that two years ago, my wife and I got involved in a small group here because now we have other adults in our kids' lives who care about them and who care about their spirituality and who are praying for them. And we have the opportunity, my wife and I do, to do the same thing for their kids. So there's four ideas. We can serve, we can teach, we can encourage, and we can pray. And I wanna ask you today, how can you do that? What does that look like? But I also wanna remind us why we do that. Because the truth is we are always only one generation away from the next generation, neither knowing the Lord or what he's done. And so I wanna end this morning this way. A couple weeks ago, we had a prayer week here at the church, and on Tuesday evening, of that week, my wife and I uh, led worship here in this room. And so that evening, uh, our kids came with us to prayer time. And so we were sitting, my wife and I are sitting down here, right up here in the front row. My kids decided to sit with grandma about six or seven rows back. And my mom is awesome, absolutely love her. She's also a lot of fun. And sometimes the rules are different with grandma than they are with my wife and I. So I was a little nervous, because it's kind of a, you know, a, not somber, but a quiet moment. So the whole time I'm praying, I'm also listening to what they're doing. And I didn't really hear anything but just a couple whispers. But as soon as we were done praying, my first priority was to get to them, not to talk about what they'd experienced or what they'd prayed about, but just to make sure that they had behaved so I wouldn't have to apologize to anybody later. So that's a deeply spiritual moment for me, right? So as I walk up to them to go, you know, basically, did you guys do what you're supposed to do? My son hands me this piece of paper. And he says, hey, Mrs. Lori told us, Lori Putnam, that if we wanted to write our prayers, we could do that. So here's my prayer, and I want to read this to you. It says, Dear God, thanks for this life, and thanks for watching over me and dying to wash away my sins. You never fail me, and I know you'll be there for me, and you are the Heavenly Father. No one is greater than you. You are kind and strong, and I admire you. And I promise I did not pay him to write this, but he says, I am glad my dad's a pastor. I learned so much more. Thanks. Signed, Wesley. Amen. Church family, I just want to say thank you because stories like this, prayers like this don't happen unless my son's a part of a church where he sees the body of Christ, where he feels like he belongs, where he's being invested in and people are investing in him and all of you prioritize kids just like him. 
The truth is I'm glad that he is glad that I'm a pastor at this point in his life. But it has nothing to do with being a pastor. My wife and I are, are trying very hard, like Pastor Brian said last week, to make our church, our home a church. But we're also grateful to have a church that's a home for each of us. And I wanna make sure that as we move forward, that each of us will work together to, have, to be the body of Christ and make sure that this is a place where people can belong, where we will be intentional about investing in one another, and where we will prioritize the next generation so that each of us here and everyone that comes after us will have the opportunity to know the Lord and what he's done. Would you pray with me this morning? God, first of all, I just wanna say thank you for who you are and what you've done. Lord, we thank you for your word and what it teaches us about what it means to follow you, Lord. God, we know that our obedience isn't just important, Lord, but it speaks volumes to the world around us about who you are. God, we also wanna be authentic and just admit that as we're on that journey, Lord, there are struggles along the way. And so, God, I, I pray for each of us here today that we will take these words seriously, that we'll think about what it means to be your body, what it means to show others what your presence looks like. God, help us to be intentional about connecting with one another and serving one another and being real and obeying you. What helps us to be intentional about inviting people to be a part of this place. Lord, help us to step out and, and invest in one another, to care for one another, to encourage one another, to strengthen one another through those relationships. And Lord, we ask for your blessing on this place that as we prioritize the next generation, God, that you will move in a mighty way through our families and through our homes. God, that you will help us to be a place where we can encourage and we can pray and we can teach and we can serve the next generation so that they will follow you, that they will know you, and that they will continue to live the lives that you've called them to live. Lord, thanks for allowing us to be a part of that mission. Lord, we thank you for your love for us, and we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.